Welcome to the groundbreaking news program that delves into the heart of Mormonism, your weekly window into the unique intersections of news, history, and culture that resonate with the tapestry of Mormonism. So whether you're tuning in from the heart of Utah or joining us from around the world, your favorite news program starts now, where news meets insight and the stories of our faith unfold. Good evening, everyone. This is the Mormon Newscast. Present tonight, our Radio Free Mormon, that is I, Bill Real, Rebecca Biblioteca. John DeLynn is taking a well-deserved vacation tonight. We've got a number of wonderful news stories to get to tonight, and we have a list of those news stories. They are four in total. That is the, um, that'll be the last story we cover. First one, stake president charged for failing to report child abuse. You may remember that I I did a about a 33-minute episode on that, dropped Friday at Radio Free Mormon. We're going to cover it briefly with an update and some audio, which was not available for me to include in that episode. The, there's going to be a new Hulu series on swinging Mormons. Rebecca insisted on taking that subject. <laughs> Church, announce, Church announces new seminary curriculum. It sounds drier than it really is. Bill Real will give us the scoop on that. And then we're going to finish out the episode with a Mormon LGBTQ plus controversy. That's the one really that the slide is based on the thumbnail that you saw at the outset. So are we ready to go with the first story, Mr. Real? Let's do it, my friend. All right. If you have been hiding under a rock, you may not have heard that an LDS stake president in Pennsylvania has now been charged, and I believe arraigned this past Friday, with failing to report child abuse. It is a one count information, one count of failing to report child abuse. This comes from ABC 27 WHTM out there in, that's our affiliate out there in Pennsylvania. And this story was by Seth Kaplan and George Stockberger. Want to make sure that we give them the correct uh, credit for this story. Here's the story. Pennsylvania State Police have charged Rhett Heinze. Hinsey, I believe I said Heinz last Friday. I've been corrected since then by people who are apparently in the ward and stake. And I guess it's Hinsey. So I want to try and pronounce it correctly. Have charged Rhett Hinsey, a lobbyist and stake president of seven area Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint churches with being aware of but not reporting child sex assault allegations against a Lebanon County church leader. The charges were filed on Wednesday, and Hinsey is scheduled to be arraigned Friday. That's last Friday. Police expected Hinsey, age 50, to turn himself in. He is charged with failure to report or refer allegations, a third-degree felony. In Pennsylvania, third-degree felonies generally can carry prison terms of up to seven years. According to police documents, Hinsey's church leadership role, i.e. state president, made him a mandated reporter under Pennsylvania's Child Protective Services Law, which dates to 1975, but expanded in 2014 following the Jerry Sandusky scandal to include more categories of people as mandated reporters and to increase the penalties for not reporting allegations. Sean Corey Gooden, this is the individual who actually did the sexual assault on the children. I believe it's fair to say that he did that. I believe he has already... Uh, pleaded guilty or been found guilty of that crime. Sean Corey Gooden, who police say held leadership positions within the church's Lebanon ward. My understanding is that he was a bishop up until 2020, 
when he confessed to the state president, Hincy, and then was released from his, um, his calling as bishop. Sean Corey Gooden, who police say held leadership positions within the church's Lebanon ward, was charged in 2022 in Virginia with sexually assaulting a minor in the Woodbridge area and 2023 in Pennsylvania with sexually assaulting a minor in Berks County. Police said the assaults happened between 1997 and 2000. So all of these assaults that are being alleged happened 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago as of this point in time. And the victims were between 8 and 12 years old when the assaults occurred. State police also detailed one sexual assault allegation involving Gooden and a 12-year-old boy at French Creek State Park in the year 2000. Police say Hincy, the state president, who was also chief operating officer of the Harrisburg-based Bravo Group, and the Bravo Group apparently tells ABC 27 News that Hincy is on leave as of late Wednesday last week. But police say that Hincy knew about the allegations against Gooden as early as October of 2020, while Gooden was a church leader and nearly two years before he was arrested. State police say Gooden and the victim had disclosed the sexual assault to Hincy, who failed to report the abuse to authorities. Gooden was 47 years old when he was first arrested in 2022. And then they include a statement that was released by the church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints works actively to prevent abuse. Our hearts ache for victims of abuse. And the church is committed to addressing such incidents wherever they are found. The church wrote in a statement provided by Hensey's attorney. The church trains its leaders and supports their lawful efforts. The charges now brought by local prosecutors, the church statement goes on, for failing to report the abuse are misguided and the church will vigorously defend him, period, end of quote, end of the statement from the church, end of the news article. Now, we did find on Reddit, or I should say Rebecca found on Reddit, a copy of the Affidavit of Probable Cause, which sets forth what it is that is alleged to have happened here by State President Hincy. Can we go to the next slide? That will have that bottom part. See, the bottom part is where all the facts are, so I wanted to have it big enough so I could read. Thank you, Bill. From the Affidavit of Probable Cause, in September 2022, the Pennsylvania State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation was contacted by the Prince William County Police Department in Virginia regarding a sexual assault investigation they were conducting. Through their investigation, information was received that a juvenile victim was sexually assaulted somewhere in Pennsylvania by Sean Gooden. Investigation into the assault began in Pennsylvania, and it was discovered Gooden had sexually assaulted a 12-year-old male at French Creek State Park in April of the year 2000. Gooden was charged in July 2023 with charges stemming from the incident. During the investigation, and this is the key part, during the investigation of Gooden, it was discovered that Gooden and the victim of the sexual assault had disclosed the sexual abuse to their religious leader, the accused, Rhett Hensey. At the time of the disclosure, 
Hinsey would have been acting as a religious leader in his position as Harrisburg State President for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and therefore would have been a mandated reporter as defined did, I'm sure they mean defined, in Title 23, Section 6311. However, Hensey failed to report the abuse to authorities. Hensey was charged with one count of failure to report or refer. Charges were filed on January 31st, 2020. I've got to think that's 2024. It says 2023. These affidavits of probable cause are infamous for their typos, as you can see from this example. Hensey is scheduled to be arraigned before Magisterial District Judge Wendy Grella on February 2nd, 2024. Yeah, that was this past Friday. So we have the affidavit of probable cause. It's very interesting to me, and it will be perhaps, perhaps dispositive. dispositive. Sorry, sorry, it's, it's I'm my, my echo. echo because it's already up there. there. We're sorry having the that. same issue with uh, echo. So Bill's taking care of that. Thank you. It says that not only the bishop, Bishop Gooden, disclosed this to State President Hensey, but also the victim, now an adult in his 30s, disclosed it to him. And the circumstances under which they disclosed it to him, I think, will be pivotal as this case proceeds through the courts. Now, the state president was arraigned last Friday on Groundhog Day, February 2nd. The next church day was the following Sunday, February 4th, i.e. yesterday, today's date being February 5th, 2024. Yesterday was Sunday. And the church lost no time in going to the pulpit, probably at the beginning of sacrament meeting, to make an announcement about this, at least in one ward, and one would suspect in other wards throughout the seven-ward state. This is an announcement which apparently was made by the first counselor in the stake presidency for and on behalf of the stake president, Rhett Hensey. And we have a recording of that that we'd like to play now. And Bill has set this up so that there's also a transcript that you can read along with as we're listening to what everybody in that ward listened to just yesterday at church. So I'm going to turn time over to President Johnson, uh, following him, and also coming on page in number 70, seeing President Ham in their opening invocation of the giveaway for the Uh Brothers and sisters, many of you are aware that the uh, state police uh, this past week charged uh, President Hinsey with the failure to believe, the failure to uh, report uh, information about an abuse situation that was given to him when he was acting as clergy, as a state president. And there's been a lot of information that's been out on the internet and causing, uh, causing questions. Um, the article spelled mentioned that uh, based on the research and the uh, position the church has, that President Hintz in this particular situation did not have discretion or the, was not permitted to report that particular information. Uh, this particular situation occurred over over 20 years ago. The, uh, the victims of the abuse are uh, over 30 years old right now. And, uh, and they've been asked to, uh, they've asked us to read a statement. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints works actively to prevent abuse. Our hearts ache for victims of abuse and the church is committed to addressing such incidents wherever they are found. 
The church trains its leaders and supports their lawful efforts. The charges now brought by local prosecutors for failing to report the abuse are misguided, and the church will vigorously uh, defend him. Uh, the situation is much more uh, complicated legally, and the information you're reading on the internet would, would lead you to believe. One thing I can tell you is that Elder Cook, member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, has been actively monitoring and watching what is uh, what is going on. Uh, president Haney, who is the president of the area where we live, uh, General Authority 70, has also thoroughly reviewed the situation. He's talked with all the lawyers involved. And the counsel we've been given is that we move forward, we continue to have our meetings, continue to work, and that all of this will be resolved appropriately, and that it's in Heavenly Father's hands, and that we're to have confidence in our church leaders and understand that everything that President Hensey did was fully approved by the church. He followed appropriate legal protocols, and that and that he's done the uh, everything that he, that he was supposed to have done. Thank you. Okay, so there we have a recording of the announcement that was made. By the way, the first thing that stuck out to me, and there's a lot of things that stick out to me in this announcement, including the alacrity with which it was made, yes. is this. We were only presuming that it was a virtual certainty that President Hensey had called the LDS abuse hotline and had been directed by an attorney on the other end to not repeat, not report this abuse. This statement appears to confirm that. It said that President Hensey did everything that he was told to do. So it looks like that is exactly the way it happened. Now, Rebecca, did you have any thoughts about this statement or this story? And then we'll come around to you, Bill. Yeah, well, first of all, in playing this statement, it's been a long time since I've set foot into an LDS sacrament meeting, and I, I've lost that ability to hear through the noise, through the background noise. So I was really trying to focus because, boy, that was distracting. Um, sorry. I think it's very interesting to me, as you said, how quickly the statement came out. I think of other situations where perhaps there is someone that's a danger to the congregation or the stake, and it seems like those announcements are not made from the pulpit. Uh, people are not protected yet when it's one of their own that seems to be in some trouble. There might be some rumors. People under, aren't understanding. They quickly take the stand. They quickly make sure they name drop some of the names of the apostles, the general authorities, the 70s. Everyone's on this. You know, the whole weight of the church is behind this stake president. My main thought would be, um, as it goes forward, I hope the stake president retains his own counsel because I feel like it may eventually come to a head where he is going to have to say, to protect himself. I acted on the advice of the church. And of course, the church has a different perspective. And the church, if they're supplying lawyers and legal counsel to him, I don't know that they will have this man's best interest at heart in the end. So we'll just have to watch as we go forward. Yeah. And he could actually say, I was acting on advice of my attorney, because that's what that attorney becomes when he starts talking to him and they start developing that attorney-client relationship that the church likes to rely on so much. <laughs> Your thoughts, Bill? I have a question, RFM. If a lawyer is representing multiple parties in a case, so for instance, the stake president and the church, right? Are they ob are you obligated to do what's in the best interest of both people? Or always. Yes. You're always okay. obligated to represent zealously the interests of your client. 
Okay. If you have more than one client, which is always a dicey proposition for exactly this reason, unless their interests are exactly aligned, you could end up in a place where I think they are at the outset of potentially having a conflict of interest in this case. Is that where you were going, Bill? Yeah, I don't think you can do both exactly. You have to compromise one in order to do the other. Well, I think what the church has done is they have hired a criminal defense attorney in Pennsylvania. That's what I expect. His name was mentioned in the Deseret News article. I forget about it now. He didn't say anything except I can't comment. So I expect they're doing that. But my spidey sense goes off big time when I hear the announcement being made. First off, everybody can rest easy because Elder Cook and Mr. Haney are on the case. They are, they're in charge. They're, they're watching this. But what it said about President Haney, I guess he's a president in the area of presidency. President Haney has talked with all the lawyers involved. Yeah. Now, he, I do not expect that means the prosecutor, although he doesn't say it doesn't, and that would have been, that would be one of the lawyers involved. Yeah. Why is he talking to all the lawyers involved, including, it would certainly include uh, the state president's attorney, wouldn't it? Yeah, because the so. church is apparently doing what I expressed concern that they might not be able to resist the temptation of doing on my RFM show, which is putting their thumb on the scale in order to protect the church, protect Curtin McConkie, and protect the attorney who told this state president that he should not report the abuse. The, uh, the other things that caught my eye was the statement he read felt to me like it was crafted from higher up. It wasn't the state presidency sitting down and writing that out. It was somebody up at the higher levels of church communications. It was the same statement that was included in the news story. Yeah. Um, so that. The other thing is that there's this comment. It doesn't, it occurs to me to sort of be an irony where the church says, hey, congregation, just know the situation's way more complex than the news is presenting it. And it strikes me that almost always church history and the truth claims of Mormonism are more complex than the church chooses to tell people, mm. right? So it bothers you on one end, but in some other places you play the same game. I want to just tell you that um, the thing that, I, that strikes me is that at one and the same time and in the very same announcement, they're saying how much they care about uh, kids being abused and how they work so hard to prevent it, right? And how their hearts break for it. But the state president didn't report the abuse. He was told by the church not to report the abuse. And we're going to defend him to the best of our ability for not reporting the, the abuse. Those seem to be inconsistent statements to me. Yeah. And then the last thing is that uh, the speaker there, the counselor in the state presidency president said Johnson. that, yeah, he said that uh, the state president, you know, uh, State President Mr. Hensey did not have discretion to report the incident. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the laws in that state, but there's been way too often in the last few months, year, where the church did have discretion but chose not to. And I'm, I'm concerned that the possibilities here that they actually had discretion or were mandated, those were the options, and they, did, they misunderstood the law, they were mandated, is what the county prosecutors saying, right? And what the what they're arguing is that if if you read the laws the way we did, uh, we we were mandated not to report. And my hunch is that they might have had discretion to report and chose not to. 
And if that's the case, that's a very different thing than telling the congregation that the man didn't have discretion to report. Does that make sense, RFM? Yeah, there's obviously a difference of opinion about what the law in Pennsylvania requires of a state president. We don't know the details about how this was disclosed to him. That will be critical, whether it was secret and in confidence. That's required under the Pennsylvania law. There's also an issue that I covered, which I won't hear, as to whether the clergy penitent privilege in Pennsylvania even can apply to a church such as the LDS church or the Jehovah's Witnesses. It definitely would apply to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church. And if it's read in that way, then that could raise another legal issue, a constitutional issue about is this fair and is this an equal application of the law to apply it to one church but not to another. So all those things will have to be sorted out in court. The judge is the one who's going to make the decision. But it was nice of the church to rush to the pulpit at the very first uh, gathering of the saints in order to give the defense's closing argument. Yeah, and then I would want to mention one more thing, which is if the victim also spoke to the church leaders, how does that affect the stake president's ability to report it or mandated to do so or to not do so? Yeah, interestingly, the Pennsylvania statute doesn't talk in terms of confession. It talks in terms of secrecy and confidentiality. Hmm. So I don't know. Those are things that will have to be developed later on. But obviously, the prosecutor doesn't agree with President Johnson and the church's statement. Yeah. And I was going to add very quickly that in looking at social media and finding posts from people that say they are in the ward there and in the stake, that after the statement was read, they talked about somebody comparing the stake president to Joseph Smith as far as being persecuted for doing you know, the, the correct thing that the church is telling them to do. People were almost bearing testimony um, of how this was strengthening their testimony in this, you know, the persecution complex, right? That's what we're talking about. So again, anecdotal from people that say they're, they're in the wards there. There. Yeah. In Mormonism, sometimes bad behavior often leads to uh, to an increase in testimony, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. The only reason that anybody would be coming at you legally is because your church is true. Yeah. It's the only reason. <laughs> and now we have the next story, which I think is... Is that yours, Rebecca, or is it's that mine. yours, Rebecca? Yes. It's mine, and, and Bill led right into it by talking about bad behavior ah. <laughs> or just a different type of behavior. Yeah, this is a new um, docuseries that's supposed to be in development on Hulu, and it's actually called The Secret Lives of Mormon Wives. But I, of course, I always go by the style guide, so I've changed it to The Secret Lives of of the wives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because technically that is how it should be. And I have a feeling they might contact Hulu and make sure that they make that change. But anyway, very interesting. So this was on ABC4 News. It says a new docuseries about wives in the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are also swingers is coming to Hulu, according to Deadline. That's why I have a picture of an upside down pineapple there. If you don't know what that means, Google it or don't Google it. Ask a, a trusted friend. Anyway, the new series is titled The Secret Lives of Mormon Wives, and it's currently in the works, according to Rob Mills, um, one of the executives at Disney. Um, we have a show that we're working on now we're really excited about, which is about a group of Mormon wives 
who are also swingers, he says. The show is reportedly being produced um, by Jeff Jenkins Productions and the company behind Netflix, Bling Empire. So this is very interesting. It doesn't say much more about the show. It doesn't say if it's current active Mormons, if it's somebody who's a post-Mormon and maybe somebody from the FLDES community. It doesn't really go into it. It just says Mormons, which is kind of a catch-all phrase, you know, for the rest of the world. They don't make those distinctions. So this caused um, a lot of interest, of course, across the Mormon spectrum. And it made me think about the other documentaries that have come out. I think most of these have been within the last year and a half, maybe two years. And maybe you guys have seen some of these um, Mormon No More, the story of two Mormon wives who in the same ward married each other. Daughters of the Cult, that's the LeBaron story. Murder Among the Mormons, that's an older one. And that was the Mark Hoffman story. A Friend of a Family, and that is the story of Jan Broberg being kidnapped twice by her home, te home teacher in Idaho when she was a child. Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey, that's Warren Jess and FLDS. Under the Banner of Heaven, of course, that's based on John Krakauer's wonderful book about the Lafferty murders. I guess I shouldn't say wonderful, but it was a well-written book. Um, Sins of Our Mother, that's about Lori Vallow. And of course, Sister Wives is always there with Cody Brown and the whole crew there. So lots of documentaries involving Mormons to some degree of another. So of course, the other media had to weigh in on this. And Deseret News seemed probably the most concerned of all the different articles that I read. And their title, of course, is New Hulu Series Puts Latter-day Saints in the Spotlight Again. Is it time to address religious stereotypes in the media? So they're claiming that um, a series on Mormon swingers somehow seems to be a stereotype of what Mormons are seen as. So um, Tad Waltz wrote this article and he says, People want stereotypes to change. Religion is the most sensationalized, the most stereotyped. Um, what we see from Hollywood is political. It's divisive and awesome, sensationalized in stereotypes, um, rather than an accurate portrayals of faith as ennobling personal lived experiences. Um, the author says 61% of the poll's respondents about media perpetuates faith-based stereotypes rather than protecting against them. Everyone's saying, stop stereotyping my faith. And Hollywood doesn't see that. The news doesn't see that necessarily. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think new doesn't want to report about it. I think there's a lack of education. There's a lack of faith fluency. They're just not informed about how to accurately represent different religions. And so they rely on stereotypes instead of being accurate. So in the Deseret News, at least, they're claiming that this documentary, the one about swingers, and all the ones that I just read in the previous uh, slide, those show stereotypical Mormons. And I don't know, I guess we'll have to talk about that because to me, it definitely shows more the fringe element, more the darker side of Mormonism, and they just sort of happen to be Mormon or as many of these documentaries point out, um, is kind of informed by their Mormonism and some of their more extreme beliefs. So that was an interesting take on that. And then as we move over to the Tribune, they have another perspective on this. Uh, the title of this, and this is written by Jenna Reese, um, a reality show about Mormon swingers. The real reality of LDS sex lives is far more boring. So she is going to delve into the idea that there's nothing sensational. In fact, probably the opposite about Mormons and their more intimate relations 
So she says, sexual conservatism for most Latter-day Saints stretches from the teen years into adulthood. There's already been a whole thread of TikTok voyeurism about Mormon swingers. And that is true. If you remember a couple years ago, there were some TikTok Mormon swinging moms that uh, there was a lot of drama in Draper, kind of 20 miles that way from where I live. Um, and, and part of the allure is the privileged lifestyle they appear to lead. Last year, much of that glamour came crashing down with the domestic violence plea deal of Taylor Frankie Paul, pictured here, a mom, an, a, a Utah momfluencer with more than 4 million TikTok followers. I expect that Paul, a self-described soft swinger who is now divorced from her husband, will feature prominently in the Hulu series. So Jana is predicting that perhaps this series will follow some of the people that were involved in this controversy a year ago. And I expect this because there just aren't a lot of Mormon swingers, says Jenna, out there statistically. If we're looking for people who are, number one, still members of the church in good standing, and number two, married, but routinely engage in sexual practices with people other than their spouses, that is a vanishing rarity, claims Jenna. So here's the reality that will never feature in a reality TV series. Most Mormons are deeply, predictably, embarrassingly boring when it comes to their sex lives. And actually, Jana would know something about this because she is the author of The Next Mormons, where they did quite an extensive study about habits and practices of Mormons. So as the article continues on, she says that sexual conservatism starts in adolescence. Research by Mark Regeris using the National Study of Youth and Religion found that 72.5% of Mormon teens abstain from sex, the highest of any religious group surveyed, more than any other religion. Uh, Latter-day Saint adults are far less likely to approve of sex outside of marriage than other Americans and less likely to say they would vote for a political candidate who has cheated on their spouse. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> The next Mormon survey, and that's her book that I'm referring to, was in 2016, and this confirmed that overall conservatism existed. Uh, while most people who are still members say they engaged in practices like hugging and kissing before marriage, most did not have intercourse, perform or receive oral sex, or have anal sex. In fact, a majority said they did not even masturbate before marriage. Now, in the article, she does go on to say these numbers are self-reported, and she feels like there's there's a lot of motivation to not report these numbers accurately, <laughs> either to your religious leaders or somebody that shows up at your door to take a survey. So she can neither confirm nor really deny if those are accurate. But as a whole, she's trying to tell us that Mormons are more conservative, both before marriage, in dating, and after marriage. So I don't know if the swingers are a stereotype as much as an anomaly. And this kind of um, piggybacked on this one other article that I think relates to this. Um, I had seen this advertised in the church news last week. There's going to be, and it has actually just happened last week, a giant sort of a group date bursting on the scene how schools and institutes carried out ces date night and the idea behind this is just that lds kids are not hooking up they're not dating they're not getting married because they're not dating so the idea is to have this giant across the board all universities all institutes um a big party a big date night in different locations so the church news article says that the original message was offered by president dallin h oaks first counselor in the first presidency, who, sitting with his wife, 
Sister Kirsten M. Oaks, and I did watch this uh, devotional, taught of the doctrinal significance of marriage and parenting and reiterating to young adults across the globe that dating precedes marriage, meaning you've got to get out there, you've got to date. And, and again, his lovely wife, of course, she did not marry President Oaks until she was 53 years old. That's kind of an interesting little aside there as she's giving that advice to the young people to marry early and have children. Um, we have so many young people now who are more connected than ever on Instagram, but they don't talk to people in real life. Elder Clark G. Gilbert, a general authority 70 and church commissioner of education told the church news. And based on the impressive turnouts at these events, and we're talking about these, this giant massive group dating experience that happened last weekend. If we were tracking the largest date night in the history of the church, that maybe happened, Elder Gilbert said. But what's far more important is we are teaching the principles of the family proclamation, principles of the family and amplifying a message of the prophet. So these date nights, I guess, were really trying to promote the proclamation of the family and a certain type of dating experience, perhaps a more rigid type of, of dating experience. So I crunched some of the numbers that I grabbed out of the article and let's see how many young people participated and then we'll kind of talk about this. So apparently, and each university was set up their own series of activities. And these included bowling and karaoke and um, pot painting and, you know, dancing and roller skating and pickleball, just all kinds of activities across the board. So at BYU, there were 6,500 participants. And this means that you were encouraged to bring a date. Somebody could set you up on a blind date. They said some people, as they were walking up to the activity, were kind of yelling at each other, hey, why don't you be my date? So it was just to really get this communication going and create an environment where people could interact, I guess, without fear, come out from behind their screen, right? Um, it like Burning I Man. What? It sounds like Burning Man to me. You know, there is that sense. Yeah. A Mormon version of Burning Man. Well, if you want to see what it looked like, the Church News has an extensive article with pictures from all of these different locations of what they were doing. So BYU-Idaho had 7,000 participants. BYU-Hawaii had 1,200 and then there were institutes all over. The ones that reported numbers were Logan, 500, and Orem, 900. This is a huge amount of young adults. And again, these are college-age kids um, showing up to meet, to greet, and, and to interact and to date. So any thoughts, RFM, on just the idea of Mormons being portrayed in the media, you know, perhaps in a very different way uh, than, than what we've read in other articles about them. And then the church's idea sort of push to get these youth out there so that they can follow the covenant path, right? They're stalled. Well, the first thing about that article by Jana Reese, was it? Yes. Yes. She's wonderful. She's insightful. She's intelligent. She may have missed the boat on this one because her whole article is about how boring Mormons are yes. stereotypically in their sex lives. Yes. Well, to borrow a line from Hamlet, which I recently quoted in one of my Brush Up Your Shakespeare podcasts, there needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this, i.e. that Mormons are sexually boring. Yes. We get it. The selling point of the show isn't because Mormons are super interesting sexually. It's because they're not. And these people are. And that's the hook. Yeah. So I'm not sure that that um, it's like kind of, you know, the two ships passing in the night, yeah. her article and what the, the show is really about. About this date night. Wonderful, you know. Just great. Now, dating is doctrine. 
<laughs> the Everything right kind of doctrine dating. in this church. Yeah. Dating the is right doctrine. Time. You got to date before you can have a family. The church is really uh, obviously panicked, not only that they're yeah. losing members out the back end, but that the 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 faithful members at the front end aren't reproducing <gasps> as fast as they need to. Yeah, I think but, that's it. I, did you say something, Bill? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I heard a puppy barking. I don't know. <laughs> did you want to say I something? Do. Go I do. I have Bill. one I in done. here. Let me let done. me just uh, say, first off, this is probably an instance where the church is going to be perfectly okay. <gasps> the dog is weighing in on the dating. I get it. I kind of have always felt that the church has scared the kids, you know what, less when it comes to dating. Don't you think? So many rules, so many regulations, so much fear. All right. It's all locked down. I feel like the kids are just too terrified to even look at somebody um, in a dating, in a dating, you know, with the eye to date. I feel like they're just, it, it's kind of the life has been sucked out of them. I think everybody wants to know what Bill just did to that dog to get it to stop barking. Nothing. My wife came home. That's why he was barking. He was quiet for an hour. If she wouldn't have walked in, it would have been great. So this is one instance where where the church is probably okay with using the word Mormon over the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the Mormon swinging wives. Uh, I also want to note, there may be a correlation between an organization that has date nights where they study the family proclamation yes. and an organization full of members who are having boring sex. Yeah. There might be a connection there. Right. If, if you're not having exciting date nights, you're probably never going to have exciting sex. I don't know. Everything's very regulated. Everything's on the covenant path. And I think people are afraid to stray too far from that, even once they're married. So, yes. and, and, oh, like and, Rebecca said, I think they're afraid of being too rigid. Yeah. And the article also said that most Mormons haven't masturbated before marriage. And my BS yeah. meter is going off yeah. all over the place, yeah. knowing that 99 point whatever percent of yeah. young boys are touching themselves yep. long before they get married. <laughs> no, it's like a story from the mission field that I heard from a relative where, you know, the mission president gets up and he said, there's been too much masturbation reported in this mission field among the elders. And then he said, and among the sisters. And that just shut the room down because, you know, the elders had never thought of that. But he said, this has to stop. And then at the next conference, he said, I'm happy to report that the number is zero. No one is doing it anymore. Yeah, I mean, self-reporting. Wow. Repress people's answers. Yes, Love it. that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So if we're done with that, uh, did you have anything else you want to say, Rebecca or Bill, about Rebecca's two stories? Thank you for those two stories, by the I, way, Rebecca. We'll look for the documentary. We'll see what happens. And then maybe we'll report on it when it comes out. Maybe we'll show some clips. Who knows? Maybe it will be boring. Maybe it'll be a total... <laughs> Total loser of a show. I don't know. We'll Maybe Mormon see. swinging is holding hands. I don't know. I have no I've idea. got a feeling it's got to be more than that. They're looking for ratings. <laughs> Mr. Real, you have a story. I do. It is the uh, addition this week that we were told that the seminary program will be adding a life, a set of life preparation courses or a course on life preparation to uh, to its students. And uh, I've got a little video that I wanted to play with that. So here, uh, here it is. In a recent announcement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints revealed changes to its seminary program, introducing what they term a life preparation course and lessons for students. While the initiative is presented as an effort to provide practical skills and values to teenagers, skeptics such as myself are questioning the underlying motives 
and potential consequences. The move detailed on various church-affiliated platforms, such as LDS Living, LDS Daily, The Church News, and Latter-day Saint Magazine, raises questions over whether these changes genuinely aim to benefit individuals, or if at least in part they serve as a strategy to foster loyalty to the faith. The inclusion of life preparation lessons raises concerns about whether the church is focused on creating healthier, well-rounded individuals or molding more obedient followers. The skepticism centers on the potential for these lessons to prioritize allegiance to the church over individual well-being. Furthermore, there is an apprehension regarding the impact on intellectual independence, whether these lessons will foster an environment conducive to honest seekers of truth or if they might subtly manipulate students into dismissing challenging facts that contradict the truth claims of the faith. The announcement creates broader conversation about the intersection of religious teachings and personal development, with observers closely watching to see how these changes will unfold in the seminary program and whether they will genuinely contribute to the holistic growth of students or serve as a mechanism for reinforcing religious loyalty. Back to you, RFM. Thank you, Bill. Did you have any thoughts about that? Because I have a couple of thoughts. The first being that was like a couple of years ago. I will get back to your thoughts in a second. A couple of years ago that the church uh, started instituting this uh, missionary program for their post-mission. And like six months or a year away from the end of their mission, they started having to fill out these different assignments about what they'd be doing and that was followed up on after they got home from their mission. It sounds like this may be the same kind of thing. Obviously, the church is pulling its hair out over the fact that so many of its youth are becoming inactive, are leaving the church, and they're trying desperately to come up with a program that will help, that will change that, and that will help guide them in the ways of orthodoxy, all the way to the temple and then all the way to the grave, wearing their temple clothes. What are your thoughts, Rebecca? <laughs> wow, that was kind of a dismal thought there, wasn't it? So Sorry, it just came to me. No, I know. No, it's I very poetic. Very poetic. No, I see this exactly how you see it. It is a way to structure someone's life where there really is no deviance from, from the covenant path. Again, I believe what it is. I noticed last year, or maybe it was the year before, where in seminary, instead of reading the scriptures like all of us had to do, right? Every year you had to read the whole thing and you crammed it to the last day. No longer reading the scriptures, just certain scripture mastery scriptures. So not turning to the scriptures, don't want to address any of those issues. Now we're just talking about life skills or things that kind of keep you on that path. So when I first read the title, I thought, okay, that's good. Are you going to teach them about finance, taxes, um, investments? Are you going to teach them those kinds of life skills? There's a little bit like that, self-reliance, which I think kind of partners with the program that already exists. But the other life skills are preparing for a mission, preparing to go to the temple. So we're talking about your celestial life skills here. And again, it just locks you in. I think this goes hand in hand with what came out. I think it was six months ago. We're now mission prep, meaning putting your papers in, being able to get a call. Now the, the window for that is over a year. So literally somebody in 11th grade could already be in the system as far as a mission, you know, having meetings with leaders, um, making sure that you're on the path to do that. You're just completely in the system. And this seminary program, which I believe these life skills, they said are going to be two days out of the five days of seminary. 
this would be great if they were actual life skills, but I feel like, again, they're just celestial life skills and covenant path still skills to just keep you even more wrapped up in, in this mindset and also the busy work. So unfortunately, that's my mindset. That's what I think. Bill, I want to ask you this and also get your thoughts on it, Rebecca, because it wasn't that long ago. It was a year or two ago when Elder Bednar shocked the Mormon watching world when he redefined free agency as moral agency. Yeah. And what he said was that when you are baptized at age eight yeah. as a member of the LDS church, that's when you make all the promises, including promising to pay tithing, promising to serve a mission, promising to get married in the temple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that there's an effort there to backdate this uh, involvement in the system, this introduction in the system that you're going to continue with all the way back to eighth grade, which is basically second grade, isn't it? And I've heard it backdated to the pre-mortal existence. Grade, eight years yeah. old is the second grade. Sorry, Rebecca. Go yeah, ahead. no, I know you're trying to say, no, I've heard it since then backdated to you made choices before you came to earth, meaning there's no way around that. How can you defend that? I mean, I've already decided. I already promised. I guess I'm stuck. You, but yeah, you got born into a Mormon family. Obviously, you made decisions. You made the choice. Yeah. It's a you guys, thing. you guys are hitting it on the head. I mean, the church is presenting this as a life preparation course, which means really, if you're being honest, the sole agenda is to create growth and development and competency in uh, young people as they become flourishing, helping them become flourishing adults. And as we all understand, this will be used, as you guys both stated, this will be used to uh, influence the young people to see the church as the one and only uh, and to keep people on the covenant path. And um, I, I put up here just, uh, when you go look at other places that do life preparation, courses or life skills it's a very different set of things again rebecca you would you know you acknowledge that there are some things in this course mm -hmm. that will hit these bullseyes but there's going to be a lot of things in this course that are really a mormon manipulation to get the kids to stay on the covenant path and not really to become critical thinkers or to become uh courageous at standing up for their integrity rather than following group dynamics i mean there's a lot of unhealthy things that the church is more than happy to allow its young people to carry forward. Good point. All right, then we're ready for our last story. We are. Give me two seconds. To, slides up yep. there. I'll let the audience Throw know. it back up. This last story has to do with the recent controversy that's flared up in the Mormon and post-Mormon community. There are people on both sides of this issue. Some people in between, what we decided to do was this is a huge story and this is a news program. So we thought we've got to cover this, but we want to cover it as a news story and just go over the basics of this story as they have been published in publicly available documents and to let you know what's going on there. Excuse me. Bill, could you take the first part of this with the yeah. slide that you created? Yeah. Give so us the backdrop for the story. Totally. Um, Charlie Bird, who is the individual, he's a gay, active, uh, faithful, to the extent the church allows him to be, right? Latter-day Saint. Uh, he's also in a, a gay relationship with another man. And he, does, he has a YouTube channel. He has a podcast. Uh, he's written uh, at least two books. Uh, 
uh, maybe the editor of one, but written another one. And so he is, he's a well-known outside of Mormonism as a gay Christian who's making it work within a faith that isn't always friendly uh, to those who are homosexual or, or lesbian. If I were to and jump in for a second, Bill, please. I would note that the center thumbnail on the top is the one that caused the controversy. Yeah. And so as, uh, as Charlie Bird has participated in the church, it seems by both his public presence and also things that have been said, not necessarily publicly, but sort of have gotten out, is that he is an active faithful Mormon who is uh, participating in the ward level, taking uh, the sacrament. And it seems as though the ward that he's in allows him to have the privilege of showing up each week and being worthy in, in a Mormon framing to participate uh, at the ward, have a calling, take the sacrament, do those things while being in a, a homosexual relationship. And we other, should mention married. That yes. is a big deal. Married. Yeah. And other Latter-day Saints who are gay don't share the same experience. Um, and so all I wanted to note with these was that, you know, this individual, Charlie Bird, has uh, been, uh, not only does his own content creation, but has also been interviewed uh, on major news stations. You see there in the bottom left, Fox, uh, and, and has been the, at least part of the topic for several podcasts that have addressed uh, the LDS church and how they deal uh, with homosexuality. Uh, this is their YouTube channel. Uh, this is one of their podcasts. They were on Faith Matters uh, as guest. Uh, these are the two books uh, by Charlie Bird. And so we're not, as this story progresses, we're not talking about an individual who kept their life very private. We're talking about an individual who sort of shouts from the rooftops that we can we can make this work, both being gay and being Mormon. Um, and I think that has some impact on the story. Um, and there's uh, their podcast uh, website, Questions from the Closet. That's the name of the podcast. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Radio Free Mormon, and you can sort of explain what the commotion is about. Can we go off this slide for a second? Yeah. Take it off the screen. Yep, let me Thank get you. it pulled up. Yep. Yeah, so what ends up happening is that John DeLynn and Gerardo are doing a show about this, which drops last week. And as part of that, Gerardo goes to the ward where these two individuals, um, Charlie Bird and uh, Ryan, we'll just use his first name, who's his husband or his partner, uh, attend because they had heard reports that they take the sacrament, which is a remarkable thing. I mean, it's wonderful if this is happening. But honestly, in 2015, with the policy of exclusion, it made people who were married gay people automatically apostate and subject to automatic excommunication. And then they reversed it three and a half years later. At least they got rid of that. And now we've got a gay couple sitting in a Mormon church partaking of the sacrament. And by the way, as everybody knows who's a member of the church or has gone to church, this isn't something that's done privately. This is done under the view of the bishop and the Bishop Rick on the stand who sit up on the stand facing the audience. And one of the things that they're responsible to do is check out who's taken the sacrament and who's not, or at least be able to be there because they know when people shouldn't be partaking of the sacrament, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not only a public thing, it's already 
a previously and regularly surveilled thing. So uh, Gerardo went down to confirm that. He did confirm that they were doing that. Yes, go ahead. Also, we should know that Gerardo is a gay man himself. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, I just assumed everybody knew that, but you're right. That's important to point out. So Gerardo Sumano, just checking this out. And uh, what happened then after that is a bit of a bit unclear, but at least at a very minimum, it appears that after uh, that show on Mormon Stories went public, that Charlie Bird and or Ryan, his partner, began receiving allegedly some death threats from some Desnat characters or people Desnat adjacent. Um, people in the church, but who have very, very strong opinions about homosexuals not being in the church and not being accepted by the church. Of course, you would think that if they were being rational, which they're not famous for being, they'd be uh, going after the leaders of the church who are allowing it to happen, right? As opposed to the people that are just doing it with the, the, the leader's permission. So apparently, though, some death threats were received. Uh, there was concern expressed by Charlie Bird and Ryan and to Troy Williams, who is the director, I believe, of Equality Utah. So the next step then was over the weekend, over this past weekend, it might have been Friday night. I can't remember exactly, but it probably was Friday night. All of a sudden, there dropped a statement that was signed by Troy Williams. By the way, I want everybody to know that we, we reached out to a number of people to come on the show. Um, Gerardo Sumano's not on the show. John Williams is take John Williams. Yeah, he's conducting something for another Spielberg movie. But John DeLynn, John DeLynn is not here either. He wasn't going to be on the show anyway, but that played out, I think, good because not having people involved in it's probably good. We also reached out to Troy Williams, the director of um, Equality Utah. I forget which one comes first all the time. I, I want to say Utah Equality or Equality Utah. He's not, he's not able to be here tonight, but he did send us a statement for us to read, which we will read as part of this. So we've tried to get uh, people's comments. We're going to read public statement from uh, Troy Williams. That's where I got the Williams from. From Troy Williams. We'll start with that. Then we'll go to a statement that was made by John DeLynn, which was posted publicly on Reddit. Then a statement by Gerardo Samana, which was posted publicly on Reddit. Then the statement by Troy Williams. And then we'll just uh, we'll talk a little bit about it after that. But mainly what we're trying to do here is give both sides of the story as fairly and as accurately as we can and let you, the audience, make up your minds about what you think about it. Can I say one thing? Do you yeah. think it would be useful to the audience to explain what the Mormon Stories podcast was about just in general? Why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah, it was basically, if you... If you've been aware, a lot of us have been podcasting about these mixed messages from the church. The church spokesman recently called is an ally. There have been all these scenarios where it seems like the church is moving in this direction of more inclusivity of the LGBTQ community. And so one of those <clears throat> signs that we saw was having Charlie and his husband fully participating in award, which is something that a lot of us had not seen before. We've seen the opposite of friends and family or ourselves perhaps being, you know, more ostracized. So the point of the podcast was to discuss these mixed messages to see 
to basically ask the church, why is their treatment of one couple here in this ward where they're loved and included and examples in other wards where it's not? What are we supposed to think? What is the message from the top? So that was really the point of the of the podcast is trying to ask the church, what are we to think? Both conservative and progressive Mormons, when we see this mixed treatment on a sort of ward roulette basis, it seems. So in my mind, that's kind of what the podcast was about and the intent. Okay, thank you for adding that. I appreciate it. Anything else you wanted to say, Bill, before we go to the statement from Equality Utah and two other equalities from different states to it signed by three people. But my understanding is that it was it initially came from Troy Williams. I don't know if he wrote it himself or, you know. Yeah, I'll save my signatures at the bottom. I'll save my comments for the end discussion. Okay, so here we go. Here's the statement. Okay, so... um, As LGBTQ leaders who value and work with people of faith to advance the rights, thank you, of all people, we reject in the strongest terms the recent actions of John DeLynn and the organization he leads, Mormon Stories. On January 25th and 29th, 2024, the Mormon Stories podcast aired two episodes that are an egregious example of the culture of surveillance, harassment, and bullying that is far too common in our society. Mormon stories located, spied on, and reported the worship activities of gay members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They then took the extraordinary step of posting videos about these activities, including screenshots of their personal membership information and manipulating photographs of their wedding to create sensational material for visual promotion of the episodes. I think that's referring to the the thumbnail. These actions led to the immediate harassment of and threats of violence toward this gay couple. There's the death threats I mentioned. Their family and church leadership. Everyone, absolutely everyone, regardless of how public or private their life is, has the right to practice their faith and belief system or lack thereof, within the community they choose. As LGBTQ people, we know the immense harm perpetuated by the idea that our lives, often the most private aspects of our lives, from our intimate relationships to the status of our genitals in regard to gender affirmation transition, are often considered open for public discussion and debate. In all cases, our lives as LGBTQ people are our own. We owe you no explanations about the way we live, the way we love, the way we care for our bodies, or the way we exercise our right to faith and religion. We call on Mormon stories to engage in a restorative justice process today by doing the following. One, apologize to the gay couple they spied on and publicly harassed. Two, remove the Mormon stories episode immediately from all platforms Three, commit to a process that recognizes that honoring individual choice is the cornerstone of democracy. There is no room in our movement for the harassment of individuals in their places of worship or because of their LGBTQ identities. We expect this from the Westboro Baptist Church, not from people claiming to advocate on our behalf. We call on John DeLynn and the Mormon Stories team to do better. So that's signed by Sarah Burlingame, Executive Director of Wyoming Equality, Troy Williams, Executive Director of Equality Utah, and Michael Soto, 
president of Equality Arizona. Okay, so that's the statement that was, uh, I believe it was published on the internet on Friday. Do we have uh, John's, John DeLynn's statement? Now, by the way, there's a lot to read here, and I'm going to have to ask if we can do a round robin on this. Uh, Bill, could you read this page? Now, this is John DeLynn's statement. It was publicly posted. I think it read it. So um, that's why we're reading it. It's public information, just as the uh, the prior statement was. So John says, I'm rushing home for a date with my wife, but I'm happy to share a few quick responses. Gerardo chose to attend Charlie and Ryan's ward 100% of his own idea, interest, and initiative. I had literally nothing to do with his decision to visit their ward and had no desire or interest for him to do so. To blame Mormon stories or me for Gerardo's decision is a false, super harmful, and irresponsible accusation by Troy, Sarah, and Michael, completely void of any actual veracity. Then second here, I would politely suggest that if Sarah, Troy, and Michael care to know the truth, they consider either asking Gerardo himself if Mormon stories or John DeLynn were in any way behind his decision, or that they simply watch the video where Gerardo thoughtfully explains his choices. And then there's a link there that takes you right to the timestamp where that occurs. It appears as though Sarah, Troy, and Michael didn't bother to do any of these basic things. Again, irresponsible. Third, I have no record of Sarah, Troy, or Michael reaching out to me, Mormon Stories, or Gerardo to gather actual facts before writing this irresponsible set of accusations. This should matter to those who care about evidence, truth, and responsible activism. Rebecca, did you read this part? (laughs) This is still part of John's statement, by the way. We're just changing speakers. Okay, this is still John. Gerardo can speak for himself, but for my sense is Gerardo wasn't stalking or spying on Charlie and Ryan. My sense is that Gerardo was conducting what he believed to be responsible fact gathering, i.e. investigative journalism, regarding a very public figure in a public place for a story that possibly impacts hundreds of thousands of Mormon lives. Frankly, it's the sort of fact gathering that Troy Sarah and Michael should have considered before writing this irresponsible and wholly inaccurate letter. As Charlie seems to function as a celebrity influencer for the Mormon church, publicizing his church activity with three times the following of Mormon Stories podcast, it seems to be a very important piece of information for LGBTQ Mormons to know that same-sex marriage is no longer an excommunicatable offense, as it has been for a very long time, and that instead, same-sex married couples can now attend wards, hold callings, and take the sacrament. If true, this is a huge news for the LGBTQ Mormon community, and I can totally see why Gerardo wanted to fact-check before breaking this story. Okay, I'll take take the next part of John's statement. If any apologies are going to happen, I think that the first apology should be Troy, Sarah, and Michael apologizing for making such an irresponsible set of accusations without taking the time to gather any evidence or speak to the parties involved. As a straight man, I did and do not feel comfortable telling Gerardo what he should and should not do as a part of his very important role in helping encourage the Mormon church to do less harm to the LGBTQ community and to help advocate for LGBTQ Mormons and ex-Mormons worldwide. I also didn't feel comfortable, that did not feel comfortable, 
silencing or censoring him in an episode he was producing for Mormon Stories podcast, knowing that Gerardo was forced into conversion therapy as a Mormon teen at the recommendation of the Mormon church, and knowing that Gerardo secretly married his husband, Zach, without any family present because of the teachings of the Mormon church, leaves me feeling like I should only be deferential and respectful to Gerardo and his decisions in this regard. Shoot me. That's how I felt and still feel. There's more, isn't there, Bill? Could you take that, Bill? Yep, absolutely. Gerardo has my full-hearted and full-throated support, and I love and respect him deeply. In my opinion, Gerardo has done more to improve the lives of LGBTQ Mormons and ex-Mormons than Troy, Sarah, or Michael could ever ever hope to accomplish. Uh, I wonder if the anger towards me, Gerardo, and Mormon stories is ill-placed and instead would be better directed at a global church who has spent decades advancing toxic and deadly LGBTQ doctrines and policies, hunting down and excommunicating same-sex married LGBTQ Mormons and presiding over an undeniable youth and young adult suicide epidemic. Where is the outrage and the condemnations for that history, Troy, Sarah, and Michael? Where are the public statements calling for apologies and action from the Mormon church and its leadership? I also question the lack of outrage at the blatant privilege afforded Charlie and Ryan as gay Mormon celebrities in full fellowship, while thousands of same-sex married couples have been hunted down for decades and mercilessly and cruelly excommunicated by the Mormon church. Where's the outrage for these past actions and for the present hypocrisy and lack of clarification on the part of the Mormon church? Yeah. Yes. So that was the end of John DeLynn's statement. The next statement is from Gerardo, which is actually longer than John DeLynn's statement, but I think he wanted to put a number of facts to which he was privy on the record. And let's, is it okay if we do the same thing? I'll mm-hmm. start out with the first page. Actually, let's let, um, I think Rebecca should start us out since it's your turn. But keep in mind, please, this is Gerardo's publicly posted response to, and starts off Troy. Mm-hmm. So it's directly to Troy uh, Williams. And I have to say, can you blow that up a little bit? If so, I'll read it. If not, it's going to have to be Bill. I'm sorry. I can't. That's you It's can't. part of the slideshow. So You no. have glasses on top of your head, Rebecca. I do, but you have to understand Let how me... small my screen is. Even with my glasses, it does not help. So I apologize for that. It's going to have to be you and Bill reading it. Okay. And Bill, I tried to monkey with that. It was just sort of the format. I know that's what I was thinking. Yeah. It made it very difficult. It would move around, but it would not allow me to. I did try. I did put on my reading glasses, but yeah, it's still too small. I'm really sorry. So is that better, Rebecca? Oh, you know what? That is better. Whatever you did. Okay. I can do it. That's awesome. Look at you. Okay. This is from Gerardo and it's addressed to Troy. Okay. So it says, I want to start by expressing regret over the inaccuracies and characterizations of the statements you backed and released yesterday. I feel there's been a misunderstanding, perhaps due to a lack of full context or engagement with the material in question. It appears to me that those who signed off on the statement might not have fully engaged with the episodes that were criticized or have comprehend or have a comprehensive grasp of the facts. I felt it's essential to clarify that the accusations leveled against John and Mormon stories, namely surveillance, harassment, and bullying, are in my view gross misrepresentations. The episode on January 5th titled, Why Are Mormons Confused Right Now?, was a response to the far-right Mormon activist Jacob Hansen. 
In this episode, John and I addressed Jacob Hansen's apparent struggle with the growing acceptance of LGBT individuals within the church. Jacob Hansen briefly mentioned Charlie and Ryan in his videos. Our response, which lasted only a few minutes, acknowledged the positive impact Charlie and Ryan are having within the LDS church. We noticed we noted their ward callings, a detail Charlie had openly shared with multiple people, never requesting confidentiality. We used publicly available photos and mentioned their callings, but did not include screenshots of their personal membership information. Can you take this next page, Bill? Yep. All right. So uh, as for the January 29th episode, Mary Gay Mormons get sacrament and callings, Charlie Bird and Ryan Clifford, I'd like to offer some context. Ryan and Charlie belong to a ward attended by listeners of Mormon stories who had shared insights into Charlie and Ryan's participation and treatment within the church. Even with this information, John never asked to do an episode or encouraged me to do one. This information had been with us long before the episode was conceived. However, not long after, we started hearing that Charlie had been sharing this information with people openly, and that when asked, Charlie would say that even if he were to move to a different ward, he would keep receiving his treatment because, quote, God blesses his children, unquote. This phrase shook me to the core, and hearing it from multiple independent sources, I became convinced that this was now a matter of public interest. When I invited Kyle Ashworth to participate in the episode, we all had our own opinions and biases about these very important events, but we all agreed that the best way to approach this subject on the podcast would be to celebrate these developments positively, steering clear of any derogatory remarks or critiques about Charlie and Ryan. However, I want to take this opportunity to share some personal motivations for my approach to the podcast distinct from John Kyle or Jillian's views. It should be acknowledged that Kyle, John, and Jillian were unaware of my intentions to discuss my verification of the facts on the podcast. I deeply appreciate their unwavering support and their respect for my autonomy, especially in handling matters deeply personal to me. Nevertheless, the decision to participate in the public religious gathering was made independently and rests entirely with me. Then he has a heading that says Charlie and Ben Shaladi, whom I who I understand is like his podcast co-host. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, that's correct. It's his content uh, creation partner. Okay, so the subheading Charlie and Ben Shaladi have accused me and Mormon stories of spreading rumors, quote unquote. Over a year ago, during a question from the closet, questions from the closet episode, Charlie revealed his relationship with Ryan which contradicted the single status he portrayed to church members, even as he gained money and prominence as an author and speaker. Without directly naming our podcast, Charlie and Ben seemed to imply that John and I were the source of certain rumors. Driven by a strong desire to sidestep such accusations, this time I felt compelled to verify what Charlie had been openly sharing with other people. This is something that neither Mormon stories nor John prompted me or encouraged me to do. It was my personal feeling that if I was going to talk about something groundbreaking on the podcast, I wanted to confirm it myself. I find it difficult to equate my decision to attend a public church service where visitors are explicitly welcomed and both my personal and familial connections to the church run deep with the allegations of surveillance 
of intimate relationships or status of queer people's genitals, especially when these are, excuse me, especially when these are privileges that Charlie has openly shared with multiple people and publicly available for anyone to see every Sunday. I'm here. Here we go. Uh, some LGBT Mormons who know of Charlie are likely suffering. Charlie's role extends beyond that of a typical public figure who just happens to have some personal religious beliefs. His entire persona and platform are intricately tied to his identity as both a gay man and a member of the LDS Church, navigating the complexities of these intersecting aspects of his life. The unique position forms the foundation of his public visibility, through which he generates income from his books, public appearances, and brand collaborations, all closely linked to his affiliation with the church. It is also noteworthy that Charlie's platform significantly surpasses that of Mormon stories, both in size and influence, by two to three times on Instagram. It's crucial to clarify that neither I nor Mormon stories have any qualms with Charlie's personal beliefs or private life. Having experienced similar circumstances, I understand the profound impact it can have, especially when figures like Charlie are held up as exemplars by Mormon parents to their gay children, suggesting that it's possible to be gay and remain within the church. I believe it's essential for queer youth everywhere, along with their parents and friends, to be aware that Charlie's vocal and celebrated involvement in the church, something he openly shares, is facilitated and likely sustained by privileges within the church that are not afforded to other LGBTQ plus individuals who may not share the same white identity, celebrity, status, or reside in affluent communities. This transparency is vital, especially considering the influence that his narrative on the perceptions and expectations of LGBTQ plus individuals within the church. Okay, I'll take the next one. As you're aware, it starts uh, with a heading, having a calling in the church is not personal membership information. Oh, responding to that part. As you're aware, receiving a calling in the church involves a highly public endorsement and recognition from the entire congregation, affirming one's service within the church. Charlie is notably transparent about his calling, openly sharing this information without ever requesting confidentiality from our sources. Therefore, depicting our graphical representation of his calling which was not a screenshot, as, quote, screenshots of personal membership information, unquote, significantly distorts the reality of the episode. Such a mischaracterization appears to be designed more to provoke public indignation against Mormon stories than to reflect the actual situation. Now, the next heading, comparing my actions to surveillance of someone's intimate relationship, discussing someone's genitalia, or BYU police tracking gay people at bars, is highly problematic. Comparing the act of attending a public religious meeting to verify publicly shared information to invasive surveillance of private aspects of someone's life is misleading and fails to acknowledge the context surrounding Charlie's public role and the importance of providing accurate information to a diverse audience, especially LGBTQ plus Mormon youth and their families. In this case, Charlie had already voluntarily shared information about his participation in the church, including his callings and sacrament, with others, which, in my view, made it a matter of public interest and opened its use in a broader context. Comparing the act of attending a public religious meeting to confirm what Charlie had openly shared with people to invasive surveillance is not only misleading but also ethically flawed. 
Such a comparison obscures the ethical nuances surrounding these actions. It is also incredibly problematic that one of the co-signers of your public statement is accusing me of secretly videoing Charlie and Ryan, Charlie and Ryan, which is far from what happened or was talked about on the podcast. I really wish I could hear it because I'll bet you're just reading the heck out of that. Sorry, my friend. It looks like we're all falling into this trap. Neither I nor Mormon stories dishonored Charlie's individual choice, as you allege. Charlie's individual choice and his right to express himself freely and openly have never been dishonored or violated. Charlie has made personal decisions regarding his public disclosure of information, including his active involvement in the church and his callings, and these choices have been fully respected. My actions taken, such as attending a public religious gathering where such information is voluntarily shared, have been conducted within the bounds of respecting his autonomy. The objective has always been to provide a more comprehensive and accurate understanding of Charlie's experience for the benefit of a diverse audience while ensuring that his individual choices and rights remain intact and unharmed. Furthermore, we never criticize Charlie or Ryan for their participation in the church. To the contrary, we celebrated it. At Mormon Stories, we respect everyone's personal decision with regards to their affiliation to the LDS church. All right, I think I'm unmuted. I think I'm on it. Here we go. My experience in conversion therapy was a direct result of Mormon public figures like Charlie. While Charlie marks a significant milestone in the LDS Church's evolving narrative around LGBTQ plus visibility, it's crucial to acknowledge the impact of such public figures like Josh Weed, David Matheson, and Ty Mansfield on personal experiences like mine and many others. My family, influenced by these figures, coerced me into undergoing conversion, conversion therapy using their stories as a means to pressure me into conforming with church expectations. Despite Charlie's awareness of the potential issues his platform and the church advocacy might generate, the reality remains that these situations still occur. Just this week, my mother cited Charlie as an example, questioning why I couldn't follow in his footsteps in return to the church with my husband. The pressure is a direct consequence of Charlie's public advocacy and his portrayal of an inclusive church experience, omitting the critical fact that his active participation is facilitated by privilege, not extended to all queer members of the church. Your comparison of Mormon stories to the Westboro Baptist Church is deeply unprofessional. Such hyperbolic comparisons do nothing but inflame tensions and hinder constructive dialogue. Nothing mentioned about Charlie in the episode was beyond what he had previously discussed himself. My turn, isn't it? Okay, continuing. This is still uh, Gerardo's publicly posted statement on the issue. Charlie has not shied away from discussing the preferential treatment he receives within the church, his openness about his calling, his continued membership, and his affluence is well known. His claim that he won't be treated differently in other wards because, quote, God blesses his children, unquote, is a painful reminder of the inequality that persists within the church. It suggests a divine favoritism that overlooks the many queer folks who have been excommunicated for far less. Does their excommunication imply they are not blessed children of God? Such a notion deeply wounds the equitable spirit of our community. 
The transition of this discussion from a verification of Charlie's public statements to allegations of espionage and surveillance is a gross misrepresentation of our intentions. My decision to personally verify Charlie's claims was an act of was an act of fact checking, not spying. It's disheartening that the core message of our episode has been overshadowed by these accusations. The segment in question lasted less than five minutes and has since been removed from the episode, yet it has unfortunately eclipsed the broader conversation about the progress within Mormonism for married couples like Charlie and Ryan. The fact that these couples are finding ways to thrive bilaterally within the church is extraordinary and worthy of recognition. This progress is the reason we engaged in the discussion and why I stand by the episode's intentions to celebrate this evolution within the church. The focus on these allegations has also diverted attention from your apparent reluctance to hold the Mormon church accountable. Where is the outrage or statements from you or Equality Utah in response to the church's actions against same-sex married couples, or your silence on the ambiguity surrounding the LGBTQ membership's standing within the church? Where is the call for the church to apologize for its historical treatment of LGBT, LGBTQ individuals? Instead of directing outrage towards the actual source of harm, it seems misplaced against Mormon stories and John DeLynn, who have long have been long-standing allies in this struggle. After speaking to important advocates in the community over the past couple of days, I am considering ways in which we can minimize the unintended effects that Charlie and Ryan could have experienced. However, given their public nature, given the public nature of your misinterpretations regarding our episodes and the false allegations of Mormon stories involvement in surveillance and public harassment, I am concerned that removing the episode might be perceived as an implicit concession to these inaccuracies and would void anyone from the ability to verify the truth. I firmly believe we have not acted inappropriately and we are open to engaging in a dialogue with Charlie to address and possibly ameliorate the situation. However, I remain convinced of the importance for LGBT members everywhere to understand how this prominent individual who advocates for queer activity in the church can sustain his active role which in my view is a direct result of preferential treatment he receives. Oop, I can get okay. that down for just a second and let you set the stage. Oh, all right. So that was uh, the rather lengthy statement, even longer than John DeLynn, and that's saying something, uh, of Gerardo. But I know he had a lot, not making fun, he had a lot of things that he wanted to say. He said them eloquently. And what we did was we had reached out to Troy Williams, asked if he wanted to come on the show. Once again, he said he was not able to because he's busy doing something else. But he did send us a statement for us to read on the show to represent his views. Yeah, let me put that up. And I'll go ahead and read that if that's okay. So this is from Troy Williams, Executive Director, Equality Utah. In America, we all have the freedom to live our faith and enjoy intimate romantic lives. The episodes of Mormon stories, which discussed Charlie and Ryan's personal lives, led to the couple receiving violent threats from Desnat extremists. No one should be targeted for violence because of what they believe or who they love. And that also includes public figures. 
both LGBTQ and LDS people have a long history of being targeted with acts of violence. In an age of radical extremism and mass shootings, we all have a responsibility to lower the temperature and show each other greater grace and compassion. I hope that Mormon Stories will work with Charlie and Ryan to seek a restorative solution that mends and heals. Period. End of the statement from Troy Williams, Executive Director, Equality Utah. So thank you, Troy, if you're ever watching this show, for sending that to us. So uh, that is the last story. I suppose we're going to share a few thoughts. I think the thing that really uh, started things going here was these death threats which apparently were received not only by Charlie and Ryan, but members of their family and leadership. So apparently Desnat is doing what I suggested and they're going after the leadership as well. Um, I haven't seen the death threats. I'm certainly taking it at face value that they have been received and that can uh, certainly get people um, upset, concerned, scared, and maybe do things um, that they might not otherwise have done. I don't know, but I think that's what led to this statement from Equality Utah and the other two Equality um, from different states. There was Wyoming and I can't remember. Your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, let me start. About uh, maybe two or three years ago, we had gathered enough information on a different story. And I'll be very, very uh, generic or general here. But there was an auxiliary leader in the LDS church, who we had collected a massive amount of evidence that they were uh, living with a partner of the same uh, gender and had lived with this partner for decades, had, it, it seemed very apparent by the, the details that we had, that they owned property together, multiple homes over decades, multiple vehicles over decades, it was absolutely clear that these two were in some sort of relationship. And we chose not to go forward with the story because what we would have done was we would have outed this auxiliary leader at the top levels of the church as LGBTQ one sort or another, right? We didn't go with that story. We, to this day, we've never done that because the risk was that we were outing somebody who was not publicly saying they were. But, but the issue was that it seemed apparent because of the longstanding relationship of these two and the knowledge of family and others who we also had comments from that the church had to have known. It would be really highly unlikely the church did not know that was the case. And what it says is that if you're gay or lesbian in the LDS church, but you are, you know, you've rubbed the right shoulders, you pay the right amount of tithing, you live in the right ward, you get extreme benefits to the point where you could be called as an auxiliary leader at the highest levels of the church. This story isn't that. No one's being outed here. Charlie Bird is a public figure who, uh, has a podcast, a YouTube channel. He, he blogs, he writes books. He is shouting from the rooftops that he is making Mormonism and his homosexuality work. 
another gay man, Gerardo, goes to the ward to ensure that what is being claimed is the case, not to out Charlie, but to hold the LDS church accountable to a double standard. This is a church that does harm and trauma to almost every other gay or lesbian member in its, on its roster, on its roles. How are we going to hold a church accountable if you can't even go to a public place and observe a public person who makes a living to some extent and, and again, shouts it from the rooftops? Um, he says that Charlie says that his privilege continues even if he moves. That tells me, while he uses the reason of God blesses his children, what it tells me is that he has a friend at the highest levels of the church who no matter where he goes, he gets to still be an active, faithful member and be in a homosexual relationship. No other gay Mormon I know of gets to do that. So the church is going to have to, this isn't about Charlie. This is about holding, again, If I'm trying to represent that side. This is about a church that has a double standard and there are only a few among its ranks who have an extreme amount of privilege and then the others don't and they're hurt and harmed. And if we can't shine a light on it in this way, I don't know how we're ever going to in any way be able to shine a light on this anomaly and hold this church accountable to make things fair for everyone. It's not that anyone wants to bring Charlie and his partner down to the scope of the rest of the folks from the LGBT community and make sure they receive harm and trauma. Rather, what, what I think everyone is saying is that LDS Church raised the standard for everyone uh, and by raise the standard, I don't mean persecute everyone. I mean, allow every LGBT member to participate at the ward level in the same way that you're allowing Charlie to, regardless if he moves or not. And then... Um, Can I ask you a question, Bill? Please. So, taking it for granted that Gerardo did everything out of the best of intentions. Yeah. And that that is what it was that he wanted to highlight. It wasn't really about Charlie and Ryan so much as it was that the church was treating them this way as opposed to others. If that cannot be done in a way that does not provoke death threats to innocent parties, as apparently happened here, what is your solution to that? If, if you say that handling major uh, issues within the church or the world at large must always be avoided if there's ever any risk of harm by the crazy people out there, then about 80% of our news stories couldn't be put on the television. Anytime you talk about a public person and some other person out there disagrees with how that person behaves or lives their life, you're going to always have the risk of some crazy person. And again, no one on the Mormon story side had a desire to cause harm. It's that shining a light on the double standard of the church caused the very members of the church who are on the extreme uh, unhealthy side of human behavior to cause uh, threats or to, to threaten harm to, uh, to Charlie and his partner. 
And, and so I, I would answer your question by saying, if you make that rule that you just stated, there are so many news stories that are absolutely valid that you could never cover. There's always going to be that kind of risk. Anytime that you are sharing the news about how somebody lives their life differently. For instance, the Mormon swingers that Rebecca just covered earlier. By telling that story, we may have brought uh, unintended consequences for the participants of that show. You can't, you can't base your standard that way. The, the intentions are what matters. Again, if you can see ahead of, you know, if you can see around corners like prophets supposedly do, th then you can adjust and say like, I, would, I don't want to do this in a, in a way that might cause someone hurt. But on the front end, they had no way to know that. They're trying to simply bring the church around and, and make them uh, acknowledge that you can't do things both ways. You, you have to be fair. Can I ask Rebecca a question now? And feel free to respond to it any way you want. Um, when you have a community such as the LGBTQ community, which has for decades, uh, especially in the Mormon church, but not exclusively within the Mormon church, been subject to uh, surveillance and following and wiretapping and doing anything that can be done in order to find out who they are so they can be exposed and brought to whatever kind of justice is supposed to be fitting for these people by the people doing the eavesdropping. I mean, this doesn't just happen out of the blue. There is a context and a long history. Do you think then that it was a mistake to engage in what could reasonably be characterized as that kind of activity as part of the Mormon stories investigation for their show? Yeah, I think it just speaks to intent. And if we all read Gerardo's statement, and I know that his intent was, as we've talked about, the bigger picture of trying to get an answer from the church, trying to find out what is your policy on a same-sex couple, because he's absolutely correct when I read his um, section on conversion therapy and how his parents had said, well, why can't you just come back to church and be like Charlie? Just recently, I had someone say that using Charlie as an example, I wonder if my child could return. So it's very naive to think that that isn't having an impact on faithful Mormons and giving them hope and then having them talk to their children, which is probably a very painful conversation and opens things up again. But when we're talking about surveillance, I'm reminded of a podcast that I did um, where I interviewed these men were in their mid to late 60s now, and they had all attended BYU back in the day. You know what era I'm talking about in the late 70s, early 80s. They had all lived together in a house south of campus that they called the Beaver Cleaver House. They were all in the theater program and they were hounded. They were harassed. They were followed. Um, they had people checking on them all the time. And, and that was just their life. They survived that way. Um, their friendship was very deep because they all were there for each other. But when I interviewed them, they're now in their mid to late 60s. The pain of that experience of being at BYU, some of them had to drop out. They just couldn't deal with, with the pressure. Some of them made it through. But to this day, they were some of them in tears on my podcast talking about that era of just being hounded and being made to feel that they were less than and broken. And it was one of the most emotional podcasts I've ever done with my, my co-host. We had no idea that it would be this way. So when you see the reality of what surveillance or, or tracking is, then you can't help but take it extremely 
seriously. So I guess my answer is kind of twofold. I'm a Libra, right? I see both sides. I do see both sides. I see what Gerardo was definitely trying to do. And that was to, to put a message out, to get an answer, to hold the church accountable, which is also very, very needed. People are desperate for these answers. And then the other side of it, of course, I see um, this history in this community of people that have been broken and surveilled and not given their privacy for decades. So I see both sides. Okay, Can I ask thank you, a you question? for that. I'm going to let you have the last word on this bill unless something you say provokes <laughs> a response for me. I want to ask you a question. Oh, it will provoke a response for me. <laughs> Look then. at that. So if I were to make a list out of all the harm and trauma and teachings from the church that have given that out, statements by prophet seers and revelators that have been inappropriate or unhealthy, and then I made a list of the things that Mormon stories and Gerardo and John have done that have caused harm to people in the LGBT community. I think I think you'd agree which list is longer is the one from the church, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Does it seem strange? I think Gerardo makes a great point. Doesn't it seem strange that Equality Utah or Wyoming Equality or Equality Arizona that they haven't spoken up to anywhere near this sort of degree to address the harm and trauma that the LDS church is caused. And I think we all know the answer, but I'll let you, I'll let you suggest, you know, say what you would like to say, but why do you think it is that we don't get this sort of accountability being held by them against the LDS church? Well, I don't want to address that because I'm not aware that that is a fact. I don't know, you may be, but I'm not. So yeah. I wouldn't want to comment on something that I don't know is true. Yeah. What I will suggest though, and what does make me think from your question, is that perhaps it was because this action of what was perceived as surveillance and then reporting on it publicly and then the death threats, that all of this came from a friend or a friendly source as opposed yeah. to a source that always does this to you. Um, here you've got John DeLynn and Mormon stories. I couldn't even possibly count the number of hours where he's platformed LGBTQ plus people, um, interviews, situations, uh, whatever, all sorts of things. And so I've got to think that that probably plays into it too. Much the same as if uh, someone did something dirty to you, uh, Bill or anybody that it would sting a lot more coming from someone that you thought was a friend than from an enemy. And maybe yeah. that's what caused this precipitous action. I don't know, but it would make sense to me. Can I add one more thing? Cause I, I want to put this up. There's a comment here. Bill real is now attacking the integrity of equality Utah. No, no, no. That's not what I'm doing. Uh, hear me out. Let me make my full point. It is. And I'm not talking to you, Arf. I'm talking to the audience or the person asking the question. I'll listen to. Yeah, please. Um, what seems obvious to me is that when you try to get a stubborn entity, the LDS church, to move, you can't really yell at them out loud in public. You have to meet with them quietly in, in you know, back room, and you have to have conversations there where the general public doesn't observe the LDS church being shamed or embarrassed. The church doesn't respond well to that. So what seems apparent to me is that Equality Utah works behind the scenes to help the LDS church change, but doesn't ever, 
I shouldn't say ever, but very minimally says anything out loud publicly that would cause the LDS church shame or embarrassment. I just want to note that Equality Utah had a double standard in this instance. I think Gerardo and John were right. They could have started off by going to them quietly behind the scenes, trying to figure out what had happened, what the motives were, what was going on. And maybe there would have been a way to fix it in the same way that they work with the LDS church. And if you're going to scream at the little guy out loud, but work quietly behind the scenes with the elephant in the room, maybe there's also something that that side can learn from the situation as well. Rebecca, do you have anything you want to say? I don't think so. I think we've covered it, or at least we've tried to. And I, I will say, I think we'll see more about this. I think there's going to be more statements coming out. It's not going to go away. And I think we scooped the Tribune, who's going to be running a story on it. Maybe today, right. maybe not today, maybe t tomorrow or Wednesday. Right. So Take it's always a good game. night when we scoop the Tribune. What I just want to say is, um, you know, I'm not involved in this. I'm an attorney by training. It helps me to see both sides of the situation. I've got to think that if I can see both sides of the situation, the grown-ups on both sides of this issue can see it too. I expect that um, both sides, now that everything's played out to this point, if they could go back and do things differently in some regard, they might have. But hopefully going forward, they'll be able to talk and recognize what the misunderstandings were and how they can do better in the future moving forward. And that's what I hope and pray for. Awesome. Thanks, RFM, for, uh, for a great news program. Appreciate you leading yeah. it tonight. You're very welcome. I hope everybody has enjoyed tonight's show at the Mormon Newscast. And I hope you'll join us next week, Monday, at 6 o'clock p.m. for the next episode. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, audience.